in Luke 23, and we've been in this series that we've been calling uh, Road to the Cross, and we're really just taking just some time to focus on those last events in the life of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. So today we're going to look at a very interesting story. Uh, It's the story of Jesus being crucified between two criminals. So one on his left and one on his right. Now just, just think about the optics of that just for a minute. Just think about that for a minute. You know, when the President of the United States signs legislation into law, normally makes a big deal out of it. And he, he is surrounded by dignitaries, generals, you know, senators, congressmen. Uh, he's surrounded by all the big wigs in Washington because they want to make a big deal of it. And they want to make a grand stage to kind of celebrate a new legislation going into a law or a new policy change or whatever it is. And I find it interesting, church, that in the greatest moment in God's work in the history of the world, on the greatest stage in the, in the history of the world, Jesus chose to have with him on that stage two unnamed criminals. Isn't that interesting? I think that that would say a lot about the kind of work he came to do. And I think it, would, I think it says a lot about the good news for the, you know, just the, the grace that really reflects the nature of what he came to do. That this is really good news for the guilty. That's what it is. And I think that's why he chose, you know, this you know, this whole thing being crucified uh, between uh, two criminals. So here's the caveat about that, that good news for the guilty. Here's here's a little bit of a caveat to that. You're going to have to make a decision. You really are. When you see Jesus crucified between two criminals, you're not going to be able to sit back and remain neutral in regard to that. You have to decide. You're going to have to make a decision one way or the other. There's no middle ground. Our human nature is to choose the middle ground. One foot with the world and kind of one foot with God. That's our, that's our, that's our human nature. But you can't do it with this. You're going to have to go one way or the other. You know, I was reading about a, a great illustration of this. Uh, there, in Glacier National Park in Montana, there is what is called Triple Divide Peak. Triple Divide Peak. And when I, when I was reading about this on Wikipedia, it was talking about how when, when it rains on Triple Divide Peak, the rain that comes out of the sky can go and end up in three different oceans, depending on where it lands. So one raindrop could land in the Atlantic. One raindrop could land, you know, land and flow into the Pacific. Another one could end up in the Arctic Ocean. Now just think about that for a minute. Two little raindrops, they're friends. They're coming down out of the sky. They're, they're chatting it up as they're coming down, right? And they're so excited because they're going to be hitting the ground together. They land just a few inches away and they end up worlds apart in two different oceans. Isn't that interesting? And what we have in this story is really an eternal dividing line. That's what we have in this story. And you're going to see it in a minute. You're going to to see two men that are very similar in every way. They, They are so similar, it's scary. But they end up eternities apart because of how they respond to God's greatest work in the history of the world. They respond in completely two different ways. And what I would say, what, you know, the case that I would make is that you and I 
our lives are representative of one of these two men. We really are. We're going to see that in just a minute. So what we're going to do this morning is I want to read to you this uh, very well-known story. It's uh, Luke 23. We're going to read verses 32 through 43. I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you please stand uh, for the reading of the Word of God. We'll begin at verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. There was an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do, not, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Now, as I mentioned, you know, this is, this is a very familiar account. And it, it really is interesting because Luke gives us, you know, he brings us right into this conversation that they're having as the three of these guys are dying on the cross. Brings us right into, we're, we're like a fly, you know, on a tree branch, you know, nearby, getting to, getting to listen to this. And it's interesting because Luke gives us this extra information because it helps to explain the nature of what Jesus is doing. It's not enough just to believe that Jesus died. We need to understand why he died. And that's part of why Luke records this conversation because we really begin to see it fills in some of the gaps to help us understand what is it that Jesus is doing here. And I think what we see in this passage are three movements, three very simple movements. I think, I think we see something different from each man. We see, first of all, one man gives a great gift. And I think you know who that is. I think we see another man misses the great gift. And then third, we see that, it, that a man finds the gift. So one man gives, one man misses, and one man finds a gift. So let's, let's, look at, let's look at the gift that was given. So you have Jesus being crucified on the cross. Obviously, the man that I'm talking about that gives a great gift is Jesus. And he's, he's on the cross. And I, I shared with you last Sunday, you know, just in, the, just in the trials of Jesus, that Jesus had gotten sideways with the religious leaders of the day, he'd gotten sideways with the political leaders, Herod and Pilate. So we talked a little bit about that. And, and what, you have, what you have happening is, you know, for the, for, the, for the religious people, Jesus is a threat to them. He is, he is, they are jealous of him because of Jesus' influence. And what you have with the political leaders or, you know, the, the secular leaders is, you know, they're just 
arrogant. They're paranoid and they're powerful. And Jesus has gotten sideways with them. But not only that, the the Jewish people, the crowd that's in Jerusalem today, you know, they're disappointed with Jesus because Jesus is not ushering in the kingdom like they thought he would. They wanted the Romans kicked out. So they're disappointed that, that Jesus didn't really turn out to be what they thought he should be. So they're disappointed with them. And then not only that, but you have his disciples who are absolutely confused by Jesus. Because they too had some misinformation or misperception, whatever you want to call it. So they're confused. And so as a result of their confusion, one of the disciples betrays him and the, and the other 11, you know, basically abandons him. And so Jesus becomes crucified. And what you have in the crucifixion is, is really just, you know, a demonstration of the collective failure of humanity from the beginning of time, because what you have is, you see the jealousy of humankind, you see the arrogance of humankind, you see the apathy, apathy, and you see the cowardice, all right here in the crucifixion. But the good news of the gospel is that that's not the end of the story, that what we see is that God had a plan for this. And what I shared with you last Sunday is that it was in the plan of God that Jesus would come and die from the very beginning. That the Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. And what's fascinating to me is the entire Old Testament points to this, that Jesus would come and die. It points to this gift that he would bring, that he would give. And you see it in Genesis, you know, chapters 2 and 3 where, you know, God tells Adam and Eve, I'm going to bring a deliverer to you. And he will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will strike your heel. And that's pointing to Jesus. And then you have the story of Abraham, where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his, his child Isaac, the child of promise. And so Abraham does what God asked him to do, and God stops him at the last minute and provides an innocent substitute, a ram caught in the thicket. And that too points to the gift that would come. And then you have, you know, some of the difficult parts of Scripture in the Old Testament to read, you know, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, where it's talking about the sacrificial system, and it's, it's kind, of, kind of laborious reading. But even that points to Jesus, because what you see is an, an innocent substitute dying for the guilty. And God's setting it all up. And then you get to the prophet Isaiah, and, and Isaiah the prophet predicts, Not like a Nostradamus prediction, by the way. This is like a real prediction, right? A real prophecy. He predicts that that God would send a suffering servant who would be wounded for their transgressions and bruised for their iniquities. And that's Jesus. And then in the beginning of the Gospels, you have John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, and he says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So what you have is all the way through the Old Testament, God is writing this story and, and, and directing the people's attention to a great gift that's coming. And what we see in this great gift is that, is that God would put the sins of the world on Jesus, that, that he would take our place. Martin Luther says it like this. He says, all the prophets foresaw that on the cross, Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that there ever was. Our most merciful father sent his son into the world and said to him, Jesus, you will become Peter the denier. 
You will become Paul the persecutor and cruel oppressor. You will become David the adulterer. And you will become Adam the sinner, which did eat the apple in paradise. That's Luther's take on this great gift. In other words, the husband that won't love and cherish his wife, Jesus took that on. The wife that won't respect her husband, Jesus took that on. The teenager that lies and rebels and is disrespectful to you know, her parents, Jesus took that on. The person sitting in the you know, pews week in and week out, you know, pretending to be something that they're not, living a life of hypocrisy, Jesus took that on. That's a tremendous gift. And that's what we see that Jesus is doing, that Jesus is dying in, dying for the people that are persecuting him. I love how Paul Zoll, he shares this illustration in his preaching and in his writings. He talks about these two guys that go, that go duck hunting in Southeast Georgia. And they're out duck hunting and they, they, they smell something burning and they look up over the horizon and there's smoke just billowing up. And they realize there's a huge brush fire burning and burning out of control. And they realize the brush fire is moving so fast, it's starting to surround them. So these duck hunters just try to hightail it. And they try to evade and outrun this fire as quickly as they can. And they realize they can't do it. They're not going to be able to escape. But what they see over in the clearing is they see a patch of the, you know, of the land that they're hunting on already burned out by the fire. It's already charred. It's already just blackened out. And so what they, what they do is they do something ingenious. They go and stand on that burned out spot. And they take a handkerchief and they, they cover their faces with it and they get really low and they just wait it out. And the fire comes and burns completely over them but doesn't burn them. You know why? Because fire will not burn in a place that's already burned. And Paul's all says that's an illustration of the gospel. Because when we stand in the place where Jesus died, the fire of God's wrath is passed over us because it's already landed in that spot. And so that's the gift that Jesus gives. And so church, the most important question is, have you trusted in that gift? Have you put your faith in that gift? And not just an intellectual assent to that, that Jesus died, but a leaning, a life leaning into that gift. So that's what we see in this story, Jesus giving a great gift. That's the first man. But there's a second man. And what's fascinating about the second man is his reaction to Jesus and this gift. He misses it completely. He misses the gift. He misses who Jesus is. He misses what Jesus is doing. He, like, he's completely oblivious. Look at what he does. Look at verse 39. He says, you know, he's, Luke tells us this. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. Now, this is, this is interesting to me because you, you notice that, that Luke, how Luke describes this. He says he railed at him. In other words, he slandered Jesus. He's angrily, he's basically yelling at Jesus and tearing him down. And he says, you know, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. And he's completely missing Jesus. He's missing, and, it, and, it, and it, as I was looking at this passage, I just think it's so easy today to miss Jesus, isn't it? It's so easy to kind of get caught up where, in what we're going through that we, that we don't even see how Jesus is working. We don't even see the great gift that he's giving. 
Now, I think the question is, well, why? Why does this guy miss Jesus? I think there are a couple of reasons why this criminal misses Jesus, who's right next to him, offering this uh, tremendous gift. I think, I think the reason why he's missing him is because he's just going with the flow of the crowd. He's just, he's railing at Jesus because everybody's railing at Jesus. Did you catch that? Look at verse 35. Let me, let me show it to you in, in verse 35. Notice how the Jewish religious rulers are railing at Jesus. Verse 35, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. And they were basically saying the same thing. He saved others, let him save himself. Not only did the religious rulers scoff at him, but the secular rulers scoffed at him. Look at verse 36. Luke tells us this. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. So what this criminal is doing is he's just going with the flow. He's just doing what just about everybody else is doing around Jesus right now. Everybody is railing on Jesus. And I was thinking, you know, it's so easy just to go with the crowd, to go with the current, isn't it? To go with the flow, what everybody else is saying, what everybody else is doing. It's so easy. And, it, and, you know, what we don't realize is the fact that the religious leaders and the secular leaders who are responsible for this, who are crucifying Jesus, you know, in their mind, they think there's no way Jesus could be the Messiah. The Jewish religious leaders are thinking, this is not the Messiah that we, that we understand. A Messiah is not going to die on the cross. And then the secular, the Romans, you know, they're looking at it. They're like, this guy claims to be a king. This is not, he is not our idea of a king. He can't be a king. Because kings don't die on a cross. There's no way this could be a king. And what they do is they mock him and scoff him. And so the criminal misses Jesus because he just sees what's going on around him. He says, you know what? I'm going to go with the current because it's so much easier to go with the flow than to go against it. And when you and I do that, church, we miss Jesus every time. And our culture today, what does our culture say? Our culture says the very same thing. You know, they say, you know, really the cross, this message of Jesus and the cross, it's foolishness. It's, it's folly. And Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He, he kind of, you know, outlines that, you know, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, from the world's perspective, man, this is just dumb. This is crazy. And they look at us and say, well, you know, there's no such thing as truth, and there's no such thing as right and wrong, and uh, there's no such thing as, you know, God's holiness and God's goodness. There's no such thing as that. Christianity, therefore, is outdated. It's on the wrong side of history. That's what the culture says. That's where the flow is going. And church, when you and I give in to that flow, we miss Jesus every time. I think that's what's working here. But there's another reason why this criminal, I believe, misses Jesus. Go back and look at verse 39 again. It, it, I think he's trying to make a deal with Jesus. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were, who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, what's he saying? I think he's saying, you know, indirectly, he's saying, if you get us down from here, then I'll consider believing in you. 
if you'll just take care of this, uh, and this is an understatement, my felt need right now, because he doesn't feel very good right now. He's dying. He's bleeding to death on the cross. If, if, if you'll just get me out of this mess, then I'll believe in you. You know what he's doing? He's playing let's make a deal with God. He really is. You ever played that? You ever done that? You ever said, God, if you can just get me out of this financial situation that I'm in, I promise I'll start giving to the church. Just get me out of this one spot. I'll start giving. If you'll just take care of this marital issue right now where I'm at, if you, if you will just handle that right now, God, I promise I'll start reading my Bible once a week. I promise. Or God, if you'll just get me out of this legal entanglement, you know, if you'll just take care of that, take care of the judge, take care of the charge, you know, take care of all of that stuff, I promise you I will, I will be in church on a regular basis. You ever played mate, let's make a deal with God? We've all done that. We all have. And I think that's what's happening here with this guy. He is, he is basically saying to Jesus, if you scratch my back, I will scratch yours. But you got you to start. You got to go first, Jesus. You got to get me down. You've got to show us your power. Show us who you really are. And the way that you're going to do that is by coming down on this cross and getting us down with you. Now, never mind the fact that Jesus for three years has been raising the dead and healing the sick and, and you know, casting out demons and teaching, you know, beautifully and powerfully in a life-changing way. Never mind he's already been doing that for three years. But this criminal says, I got to have one more test and you got to pass it. And if you'll just get me out of this, I will believe in you. I will follow you. Now, I, I'm sure that, as I said, you know, we've all, we've all done this. And particularly when, when we're going through a very difficult time, particularly when, we are in a, when we're in a, in a painful place in our life. And instead of just kind of pulling back out of that and just getting you know, kind of getting perspective and saying, okay, God, what do you want to teach me in this situation? What we, what we do is we, we kind of come, we, we kind of come at God in a, in an accusatory way. And we say, God, you know, because you've not delivered me, I will not believe in you. I will not trust in you because you've not gotten me out of this mess. And I think when you and I come to that place, when we make that kind of statement against God, we, we miss Jesus every time because he's not agreeing with us. He's not doing what we think he should do. And that's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's happening with the religious leaders and the secular leaders because they're, they're, they're looking at the cross. They're looking at Jesus dying on the cross and they're thinking there's no way God can use that for good. There's no way that there's blessing and victory in that. This is death and defeat and pain. That's all that is. And God can't use that. And so we look at our suffering and our adversity and our problems and we make the same judgment to God. God, there's no way you can use what I'm going through. So therefore, get me out of it. And I'm not gonna believe until, until you do. Basically, we're saying, God, I, I, know, I will know that you're God because you agree and you're, you're agreeing with me. And uh, it's making a deal with God. And we don't really want God. We just want his blessings and his benefits. That's basically what we're saying. You see, if, if God has the power to get us off that cross, does he also not have the wisdom to know what's best for us? 
You, you following me? Like we're turning to God to get us out of that circumstance. But we also are saying, but I know what's best. Therefore, get me down. That's what we say. That's what this guy is saying. And the truth is this, that God does have the power and he does have the wisdom to take what is painful and what is hard and what is difficult in my life to use it for you, to use it for me, for good, for God's glory. Does that make sense? He really does. You know, I remember, and I've shared this with you before, but I remember when I was in college, I, I fell in love with this girl and she broke my heart. She really did. She broke up with me and I thought I was gonna marry her. And I, I told God, I said, God, you gotta get me out of this. I'm gonna marry this girl. And you've gotta work. You've gotta get me, you gotta, you gotta get me off the cross here. And you gotta take care of this. And he didn't do it. He didn't do it. He let me stay on the cross. Now, you know why he did that? This was the greatest, one of the greatest difficulties, one of the lowest points in my life going, going through this. But he didn't get me off that cross. He let, he let me stay there. You know why? Because I needed to be humbled. Because I was trying to get God to agree with my plan rather than me surrender to his. Does that make sense? And I needed to be humbled. And pain and adversity is something that God can use to bring us to a greater dependence on, on him. The other thing is that God had a better plan. See, we're so sure that we know what's best for us that we can't even imagine that God, the all-powerful, all-knowing God, actually knows what's best for us better than we do. And I just can't tell you how many, you know, I'm so thankful for the ways that God has answered the prayers that I prayed, but I'm even more thankful for the prayers that I prayed that he has said no to. Because God knew best. And God blessed me with something even better, even greater in Luann. But see, I would have never recognized that if I had not come to that place of humility that, that God took me through, through pain. Does that make sense? And so God wants to use where you are. And this criminal, this guy misses that. He's, all he wants, all he wants is a useful God to him. That's all he wants. Now here's, here's the last one. So one man gives a great gift. One criminal misses that gift but then the third, the third man finds the gift. Now we see this in verse 42. Notice what he says. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, as I was looking at this this week, the thing that I noticed is that this criminal is not asking for Jesus to get him off the cross. This criminal is not asking for a change of circumstances. He's not. What he's asking for, he's asking for Jesus. Do you see what I mean? So the first criminal saw, saw Jesus as useful. This criminal sees Jesus as beautiful. The first criminal saw Jesus as, you know, a means 
to his own selfish end. This criminal sees Jesus as the end in of itself. This criminal is basically saying, he's not, he's not talking about his circumstances at all. He's, ta- he's recognizing the fact that he is, to this point in his life, he has centered his life on the very wrong thing. And he recognizes that and he wants a change. He wants out. He comes to a place of believing in Jesus. He comes to see who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And I think for some of us, I think, I think it could be that there are some of us, maybe many of us here today, you know, maybe the question that needs to be asked is, why do you really follow Jesus? Do you follow him because you hope he's going to give you a great marriage? Do you follow him because you want him to really bless your business? Do you follow Jesus because you, you know, you want him to heal you? Or do you follow Jesus just for Jesus? You guys know what I'm asking? Why do you follow Jesus? For Jesus or the blessings that he gives? This, this guy finds the gift. He wants the gift. He's not asking to come down off that cross. He's accepting where he is. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at verse 40. Go back up and look at verse 40. So, the, you know, the first criminal's railing at Jesus, but this guy comes to his defense, verse 40, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? He's like, yo, bro, man, you're, you're gonna die in just a few minutes. You're gonna be before God. Don't you fear God? Don't you realize what's going to happen? And then notice what he says. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now what that tells me is that tells me that that he has come to a place of repentance in his life. He's come to a place of heart change in his life. He he recognizes who Jesus is. He recognizes this gift. He, He may not understand all the ins and outs of everything, but he understands that there's something eternal happening here and he wants in on it. And he recognizes that there has been something wrong with the way that he's been living his life and he wants to change. That's repentance. That's what repentance is. Repentance, it literally in, in the Greek, uh, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. It means change of mind. It means, you know, I'm kind of, and you guys have heard me talk about this before. I'm heading in this direction. I'm living in sin. I'm planning sin. I'm delighting in sin. And then all of a sudden God works in my life in such a way where I say, I'm going to turn away from that. I'm not going that way anymore. I'm going this way. That's this guy. And that's what repentance is. And he He shows us the signs of genuine repentance. He shows us what it really looks like to become a Christian, what it means, what true conversion really is. Not not something false, but something true. He shows us that. You're like, well, what do you mean? Well, I, I I think the first sign of true repentance here is he admits he was wrong. He basically says the three hardest words to say in the English language, I was wrong. Please forgive me. It's very difficult to say that. We can't say it if it weren't for the grace of God. And he's just owning his stuff. And he's looking to Jesus 
that's true repentance. You know, in the counseling sessions, uh, counseling room, a lot of times I'll see, I'll see people that will admit, admit they're wrong, but they, they tag it with something. You know, I was wrong, but if he would do, you know, if he would just do this right, or if he, you know, didn't do that, then I wouldn't do that. And they make excuses. And what they do is they minimize their own sin and then point the blame to others. He's not doing that. He's just saying, you know what? We're getting what we deserve. We deserve to be abandoned. And I think that's a sign of genuine repentance. That, hey, I don't have anything to hide. I'm owning this and I'm going right to Jesus with it. That's a sign of true repentance. I, I think another sign of true repentance is this, that, that a person realizes that first and foremost, they've sinned against God. Like they, they go to God first. They own it with him. And yes, we, we've sinned, you know, in our sin, we, 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 we have a destructive wake that impacts, you know, the people that we love and people that, uh, that are all around us. But first and foremost, and we've sinned against them, but first and foremost, there's a recognition in the vertical relationship, I've sinned against God. And you see this in the pattern of David. You know, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he sinned against Bathsheba, and then he, he, he killed Bathsheba's husband, he murdered Uriah, and then he started a whole cover-up campaign for the whole thing. And a few months later, God sent him a prophet, confronted him about it, and God worked in David's heart. And David records his, really his psalm of confession, Psalm 51, and he says this, against you and you only have I sinned. So you see what true repentance is when it's a recognition, I've offended a holy and just God. And I think that's what you have here because you have this criminal defending Jesus. Don't you fear God? As this other guy's railing at him, don't you fear God? And so you see a picture of, of genuine repentance. And I think the question, church, is this. Have you really repented? Have you really owned your stuff? Or are you blaming others and, you know, deflecting your responsibility? Have you really come to a place of saying, I've blown at God and I need you? That's, that's what repentance is. And this is the message I think the church needs to hear. And this is the way of finding that gift. Not, not trying to save your own skin, but save your own soul through going to Jesus with it. Now, notice verse 42. He says this. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, do you know how, how outrageous that is? You guys know how insane that request is? That is absolutely insane. He is basically asking Jesus, you know, he's saying to Jesus, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, when you come into your reward, and you get there, would you just take a few minutes and remember the guy that was next to you when you, when you died on the cross? Would you, would you just take a minute and just remember me? Now, granted, I have, I have done nothing to deserve your kingdom or your reward. But I'm going to ask anyway, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Would you let me into your kingdom? Do you know how outrageous that is? Jesus, I've done nothing to deserve this. I shouldn't be allowed into your kingdom, but would you let me in anyway? This is outrageous. Now, do you want to know one thing that's more outrageous than that request? 
is the very next verse. Look at verse 43. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Is there anything more outrageous than that? Jesus answers his request. Isn't that amazing? You know what that is? It's grace. It's grace. Like this guy, this thief on the cross, he's not going to give one shekel to the early church. Not one shekel. He's not. He's not going to give the deep and wide. You know what I'm saying? He's not... He's not going to share his testimony with somebody. He's really not of use to Jesus' kingdom. He's really not. Jesus says, come on in. You know why he says that? Because God the Father sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, grace is what you give to someone you love. And Jesus extends to him grace. It's a beautiful story. It's your story and mine. And so what we see is you see in this criminal, a man who believes in Jesus, a man who trusts in Jesus. What you see is you see a man who's truly converted. What you see is that Christian conversion is not a matter of a conversion of circumstances, but a, but a, but a conversion, a change in position and a change in behavior. A change in position before God where we're no longer guilty. Someone else took our guilt for us. Jesus and the great gift. And then there's a change in behavior because there's faith and real repentance. I'm not going that way anymore. I'm going this way. Does that make sense? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So here we are, church, on the road to the cross. And on this road, we see a microcosm of the divide of all of eternity. And the question is, what's your decision? The question is, which way do you want to go? And I know you're not a criminal, probably. (laughs) But we've all felt the condemnation of our sin. And Jesus said, if you'll come to me in faith and humility and repentance you will have the gift of salvation. Let's pray together. You know, Pastor Adam asked us a little bit earlier, you know, what what sin have you been dealing with? And I want to just come back to that question. And it may be as a Christian, you need to repent Church, that's the normal Christian life. So I want to call you as believers to repent of whatever it is you need to repent of. And you do that by saying, God, I I just want to own my stuff. I acknowledge that I've sinned against you and I turn away, I repent. And I want to follow Jesus. Church, I have to pray that every day. Perhaps you need to pray it today. Why don't you go ahead, just silently to yourself, just just talk to your heavenly father.
It could be that you're here today and you're not a believer. I wanna call you to repent and believe the good news that Jesus took your place on the cross. I wanna give you the promise that if you confess your sins to God, that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I wanna call you to repent and to turn away and turn to Jesus today. Let that be your prayer. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of glory and honor and praise. We do not deserve your grace, but today we drink it in. Thank you that you extend grace to those that you love. You love us. Thank you for that, God. Change us. May the light of Christ shine through us today. We thank you and praise you and all of God's people said, amen.